Jane is an all-in-one practice management software that can help you manage your practice with a suite of features that make it easy to meet with individuals, couples, families, and more. Here on Am I a Bad Therapist, we know that two of the most important things to us as therapists are confidentiality and our time. Thankfully, Jane understands that reliability and security are very important parts of running a private practice. Jane's cloud-based software is accessible wherever you have Wi-Fi, and their team is always ready to lend a helping hand. Jane is HIPAA and PEPITA compliant, and your data is stored safely in the country you practice in. So no matter where or how you practice, Jane's always with you in the most secure and helpful way possible. Not only does Jane help us protect our clients, but they help us protect our time too with features like calendar syncing, note templates, online booking, and they have automated reminders and workflows. Which you know we love on Am I a Bad Therapist? And you can learn more at jane.app slash mental health. You can also mention the code bad therapist for a one month grace period on your new Jane account. Have you ever asked yourself, am I a bad therapist? Well, you're in the right place. I'm Allie Joy, licensed professional counselor and board certified art therapist. And I'm Katherine Escare, a clinical psychologist, and this is Am I a Bad Therapist? Join us each week for stories from behind the closed therapy door. You'll hear experiences that made us ask, am I a bad therapist? Including bloopers, jaw droppers, and other difficult moments that normalize the unique struggles of modern day therapists. This is a space with no experts, no gurus, and no hierarchies, just humans sitting in similar chairs. While we're certainly not promoting actual bad therapy, we are here to shine a light on the messy situations that therapists face on a daily basis and to normalize that mysterious gray area of clinical practice that no one wants to talk about. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So, Allie, we are talking to my friend, Patrick, today, and I cannot wait to jump into this because I've known him for a few years now, and his career has been fascinating to watch. I have loved watching it and seeing him grow and follow 
his dreams to create the career he wanted in this field of mental health. Yeah, and the conversation is so needed and amazing and fascinating. We're going to talk about how stepping back from the one-to-one work can often come along with some feelings of shame and guilt, but looking at it through a lens of we can actually still help people and maybe even more people than we ever could have imagined outside of the one-to-one work. So I feel like it's such a great spin on a conversation that's much needed. Absolutely. And just a reminder that we don't promote actual bad therapy here or bad therapists. And this is not a substitution for clinical supervision, uh, ethical guidance, or therapy itself. All right. Well, this is episode number 70 of Am I a Bad Therapist? Let's get into it. So welcome, my friend Patrick, to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing good, Catherine. It's been a while, so I'm really happy to be here. I am excited to catch up with you because I know you have a lot to share. Um, So before we get into that, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Oh, yeah. My favorite piece of everything is introductions and bios where I'm like, I'm just Patrick and can we move on from this? (laughs) So um, my name is Patrick Cassell and I am a mental health therapist, coach, consultant, speaker, podcast host, retreat planner, Facebook moderator, all the things. Live in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, And I am really excited to be here and connect and share some of my story about why I think I'm a bad therapist. (laughs) I feel like that's the perfect segue into it. Tell us what makes you, although I do want to hear more about all the things, but let's dive into it. What are you going to share with us that made you question if you were a bad therapist? Well, I retired from working as a therapist back in October, and that was about a two and a half year process in the making. And I think every step of the way I questioned that and asked myself, am I a bad therapist? Am I abandoning the profession that I worked so hard to be a part of? Um, am I abandoning my clients? All all of the things that come with um, stepping away from something that means so much to you. Patrick, for those listeners who are listening without video, would you mind sharing the age in which you retired? Yeah, uh, I'm. I just turned thirty seven on Saturday, so I retired from being a therapist at thirty six. That is amazing. So many questions. Lead us up. How did you get into that? How did you find yourself in a situation where you could feasibly retire from clinical work, from being a therapist at 36? Yeah. So it it definitely was not my intention or my plan. Um, When I got my master's in 2015, um, I just thought the end game after getting your master's in mental health counseling is to work at a community mental health agency. And I never really thought much more of it. And then when I started my private practice in 2017, I thought, okay, this is the finish line. Like this is where my career takes me and happy to work for myself and have autonomy. And I am an autistic ADHD therapist and um, entrepreneur and I get bored very, very, very easily, especially if I feel like I've done something really well and then it's like, well, what comes next? That's always a, that's always my mindset of like, well, what happens next? And it's not an achievement based. It's more like um, stimulation based of like, I need excitement to continue to pursue. So nevertheless, I live in Asheville, which a lot of people would consider a therapist mecca. Um, We have 90,000 people here, but I think we probably have like 2,000 private practice therapists. And everywhere you walk, everywhere you look is another private practice therapist's office. So we're really fortunate because we have a community that's 
really based in the mentality of abundance and sharing and, and knowing that there's enough clientele to go around and supporting one another. And that that's really unique. And um, before COVID happened, I was meeting with therapists for lunch and coffee and networking purposes and helping them build their businesses, mostly for free um, or for coffee or for lunch. And I apologize to all of you who have paid me substantial amounts of money since that time. But everyone would say, you're really good at this. This this is probably something that you should um, pursue as a career. And I would always say like, no, you know, Allison per year with abundance is here and Allison's a friend. And um, why would anyone hire me if they could hire her and all the imposter syndrome things. But nevertheless, you know, once COVID started, I started launching courses, um, six person, six week, take the lead courses initially. And they just started to grow and grow and grow and grow. And, and um, ultimately what I found was like, I'm spending a lot of my day focusing on my other business and I'm feeling a lot less capacity to be 60 minute increments of time, like butt in the seat working and and absorbing all the time because I think as an autistic human, you know, the the energy absorption is really real and and the toll that it takes. So the more understanding I had about my own nerve neurotype and nervous system, um, the more I had to start making some really challenging decisions. What questions did you ask when you started to make those decisions? How did you reflect on that? You noticed something wasn't fitting. How did you get to the point where you said, well, it's the clinical work. It's got to go. I noticed that when I would be in therapy sessions, I would be thinking about all the other things that I could be doing mm-hmm. um, or sh- had to do for you know a launch or some content creation that I had to create or meetings that I had um, on my schedule or podcasts that I was going to be a guest on or whatever they were. I started realizing like a lot of my energy and intention and focus was starting to shift. And I'm the type of person that if I can't be doing something 100%, then I just, I can't do it. And it really was one of those moments where I started to feel like I was abandoning the profession and also abandoning my clients, um, which brought up a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and ended up having lunch with my mentor from grad school one day. And I was talking to her about this and she was just like, you know, I think you're not abandoning it. I think you're just going to help the profession in a much different way. And that was really helpful to have that reframe, but that still didn't help with a lot of the conversations that had to happen with 40 plus clients who were on my caseload. Wow. That's a lot of clients. So did you talk to all 40 at once? Did you say, I'm going to step down a little bit or did you just go 40 clients to zero? What was that process like? Um, in hindsight, I mean, I probably drug it out a little bit longer than I needed to, but really I was thinking like, I'm going to do this slowly and intentionally. I have a group practice now here in Asheville and we have, um, 20 therapists who work here. And at the time I didn't have that. And I, I really had to start making decisions about how am I going to refer in a way that feels ethical Mm -hmm. and responsible and intentional, because these are relationships that have been formed. And one thing I teach my, my coaching clients to do all the time when we're talking about niching down and caseload management and all the things is like start making lists of clients that you absolutely love seeing, clients that you feel pretty good about, but you're ambivalent when you look at the calendar. 
and client issues or struggles or concerns that you're like, this is just not energizing for me anymore. I'm not feeling like I'm my best self around these certain sorts of um, struggle areas or even personality traits, to be quite honest with you. And really trying to break it down by who are you definitely going to keep? Who are you going to consider keeping for a little bit longer? And who are you going to immediately start having conversations about termination with? Mm-hmm. So that was that was kind of my process, which inevitably did lead to the creation of my group practice. I had a f- similar thought that a lot of people have of like, I could refer in instead of out and you know, that would be so great. But in reality, I really had to ask myself, like, do you want to be a boss though? Do you want to deal with the administrative side? Do you want to deal with the operations and all the, all the things that come with group practice ownership? Um, so a good friend of mine was asking me, Hey, I'd love to join your practice. This was back in January of 2021. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to come work for you. And I said, well, I don't have a group practice and I don't know anything about it. So why would you work for me if I can just help you start your own business. This, that doesn't make any sense to me. He said, well, I want teammates and I want camaraderie and I want support and I don't want to do the business side mm-hmm. of things. So he's still with me as my first clinician and um, ultimately did end up transitioning a lot of clients off of my caseload to him, which felt like a win-win in, in a lot of different ways because I trusted him. I knew he was going to do good work, use the same medical record systems. I could, I could give him some... Um, updates and behind the scenes information on what we had been working on so they didn't have to retell their story. So it really did feel like a good transition plan at the end of the day. That's awesome. This reminds me of a conversation, Catherine and I, we have talked about this before, where we're also very entrepreneurial mindset of like, well, why would someone want to do that under me when they can just do it themselves? Like I can just help them start a business. And it's so funny to hear you kind of echo that of like, there are in other people who don't have that side of their brain or they don't want to use it or don't want to do those things. So it's great that you could utilize your entrepreneurial brain while supporting a friend and colleague and now 20 therapists. That's amazing. So it sounds like you brought on your first clinician and transferred some clients. What happened after that? So what happened after I transferred a lot of these clients is that, you know, I'm continuing to work as a therapist. I'm continuing to see them on a pretty consistent basis, but I also started to notice that schedules were shifting. So instead of seeing people weekly, they changed to bi-monthly or bi-weekly, some of them even just to monthly. I started to notice that a lot of these clients who I had kept on my caseload were clients I had seen for years. So a lot of the time, it didn't even feel like we were always doing therapy. We were just doing like check-ins about like, hey, how's the family? How's the job? Like anything coming up for you that you want to process or anything that, you know, feels pressing. And I'm like, okay, I'm starting to feel like at this point in time, this is much more of a formality and like a comfort thing for both of us. Like we are not severing ties, so to speak, because one of us or both of us feels some sort of way about maintaining the comfortability and familiarity of the relationship. So I had to do a lot of my own case consultation and individual supervision, although I was fully licensed at the time, just to process some of this stuff of like, is this the ethical way to handle this? Is it okay to bring this up in session that it feels like we're just kind of spinning our wheels because you're a bit nervous that I'm going to be stepping away or attachment trauma is surfacing or um, there's some sort of a feeling of abandonment that's surfacing and let's process through that. But am I really going to be able to show up and be the best version of myself for you if my attention is elsewhere? 
And I think that was a really hard existential question to ask myself because it was just kind of like, once you make these decisions in my mind, you've made these decisions and, and it's, it's kind of a permanence thing. And I ended up stepping away completely this October because I had major throat surgery at the end of September. My voice is still not back a hundred percent, even nine months later. And I only had four clients going into surgery. And these were four clients who had been seeing for four or five years. And there was a reason that they were the final four clients of, on my caseload. Um, and I had told them prior to throat surgery, like, I don't know what to expect. Like, I have no idea if I am going to lose my voice, if my vocal cords are going to get damaged. Like, I want to hope not, but I'm going to think worst case scenario. And I don't know when I will be back to support you. So I started having those conversations probably in August when I knew surgery was at the end of October. And do any of you want to transition out? Would any of you like to, you know, go to someone else's caseload? Um, you know, at this time, we don't just have one clinician. We have 20 to offer you. So the answer was kind of universally the same. Like, no, we like you and we want to continue working with you and we'll wait however long it takes. And although I think that feels like validation in some ways and certainly like is an ego stroke that we don't need, but is real as a human. You know, after I lost my voice, I had to let all of them know I'm not going to be coming back as a therapist. And that was not my intention to retire that way um, or to terminate that way. But it was unfortunately just a product of circumstance. And um, I didn't really have the vocal range or capacity or energy and capacity probably up until May or June of this year. And it just felt like a really challenging thing to do, but ultimately the right decision for them because I really didn't think I was going to be able to show up again. Let's pause here for an ad break. By the way, the number one support for those of us asking ourselves, am I a bad therapist? Are clinical consultation groups. If you don't have one yet, join us on the Teletherapist Network for unlimited peer consultation groups, including a lot of different specialty groups like clinicians of color, LGBTQ+, couples counseling, EMDR. And of course, Creativity in the Clinical Room hosted by me, Allie. Plus masterclasses, media leads, and everything else you need for an ethical, modern clinical practice. Join us at teletherapistnetwork.com. Hey, listeners. It's Catherine here, and I'm coming to you today because Allie's not the best at bragging on herself, and I want to remind you all that she has an incredible resource available for free at our website, cccs.care. Allie's Creative Intervention Library is full of easy interventions that even non-art therapist clinicians like me can use with clients of all ages. Every intervention has a list of materials, an entire process video where you watch Allie doing it, and a written description and steps so you can follow along at home. Plus, she even has a list of diagnoses that might find this creative intervention helpful. So if you want to access a totally free library of interventions for when you feel stuck with clients, check out Allie's website cccs.care and sign up for free today. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now let's circle back to the show. Wow, Patrick. And to have that, to have those terminations, you know, that choice be taken away from you, right? You and your client. That, that is, that's really, that's really big. How going back, you know, looking back, it looks like you were moving towards, you know, terminating with these clients, although the choice was taken away from you. Do you think you'll go back to clinical work? Um, or was that your surgery that, you know, prematurely ended it? Um, was that going to happen anyway? I think that surgery prematurely ended it for sure. Um, but it was inevitable. Hmm. I think that by learning more about my own energy and capacity and limitations and, and just how I absorb energy from interacting and attuning, I think that it was always an inevitable thing. I think a lot of, I think my grad school mentor and my therapist would both say like, you probably were never designed to be a long-term therapist. Um, and I think that's true. So I look at it now more so from the standpoint of just being a leader in the field for the clinicians who work at our practice, for the clinicians who I've coached, for the clinicians who listen to my podcast or in my Facebook group, like really helping them be the best versions of themselves so that they can have that ripple effect in their communities. But I did not, I don't think I will ever go back to clinical work to answer your question. And does that for you feel okay? Like does the, do those thoughts ever come back up? You had spoken earlier about that guilt and that shame sometimes that came up with thinking about letting clients go. Does that come back for you at all? And if it does, how do you navigate it? You know, it, it did for a while and it doesn't anymore. So um, what I was doing in the moment when that those feelings would come up, I mean, those are definitely times where I would definitely increase my own therapy frequency. Um, I have a really good mastermind group that we've all become really close friends now, but are all therapists and also entrepreneurs and a, a place where I definitely processed a lot of, you know, how I was feeling in those moments too. Um, and I think having a good support system in place was, was really, really crucial. And if I, if I think about all the things that I'm doing and it, if we're saying like, Oh, two podcasts running international retreats, moderating the Facebook group, doing coaching programs and courses, like, uh, speaking at events, there's no room for one-on-one -on -one anymore. And that has even transitioned with like transitioning out of doing one-on-one -on -one coaching. I haven't done one-on-one -on -one coaching since before throat surgery. And it's just a new found realization of like where if my energy and capacity is so drastically altered, how can we ensure that we are allocating it in a way that it's best used and mm -hmm. best appropriately dispersed? And the reality for me is just one-on-one -on -one coaching or therapy is just not an option anymore. I love how you can look at the bigger picture and see how it fits in that not only are you, you're pulling back, yes, from one-on-one -on -one work, but so you can, you can serve the, the community as a whole in a greater way. So thoughtful, so thoughtful about that. And I have to, I have to wonder, did you get any reactions from other therapists when you were pulling back from clinical work? I'm sure that everyone in your circle knew you did a, a bunch of other different things outside of one-to-one -one work, but 
what were others' reactions? Well, I still get referrals to this day, um, you know, from people in the community here in Asheville. And that's why I think Asheville's so great because relationship building was just so, so, so important. So I'm someone who specializes in working with people who struggle with gambling addictions and who are late adult diagnosed autistic. And so I will get people who will like try to tug on your heartstrings a little bit of like, I know you're not doing this thing anymore, but do you think you could help mm-hmm. my sister's brother's cousin who mm-hmm. struggles with this thing that nobody else supports? And I'm like, and I've gotten really good at just being like, no, I, I can't. And I think in the past, that was something I, I really felt guilty about and struggled with quite a bit. But throat surgery, although has been quite <laughs> challenging, um, it's also been great for me in terms of boundary setting and, and knowing my limitations and what I can say yes and no to. So um, that's the same with talking to other clinicians in the community or in my circles of like, Hey, I referred this person to you. You never called them back. You sent them an email saying you're not seeing clients anymore. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's just where my career has taken me. So just being really clear, um, on those boundaries, really important. And also I didn't really get any pushback. I just get more of the, uh, those requests of, Mm -hmm. could you please do me a favor Maybe you could call it coaching. Maybe you don't have to see them as a therapy client. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I'm just not doing it. Like there's no, there's no chance in hell that I'm doing it in either circle. So like, call it what you want. I'm not doing that work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm glad we're having this conversation though. Cause I feel like it comes up a lot lately in conversations I'm having with others on the network, different places where therapists are recognizing Maybe a couple different versions of it, but of it, but like one-to-one work can be really draining. Also, I can make a difference on a bigger level, but it feels ingrained in our field at times of like, well, like you said, private practice, that's end goal forever. And it can be really difficult for, I think, some of us to come to terms with it, to know what direction to go in. So I'm just really glad we're having this conversation because it's very present and normalizing it helps as we know. So I'm just grateful we're talking about it. Do you feel like you see this coming up in your circles, in the work you do at the retreats, things like that, this conversation? Yeah, I think a lot of people are looking for an out um, Mm -hmm. and have gotten really burnt out over the last couple of years. Call it being in the midst of a global pandemic plus all the other things that are happening for the therapist communities and, and just the work that we do. But and and it's also a money thing. Like at the end of the day, people want to make more money and they want to work less. That's just that's just a reality. Whatever whatever we want to label it, capitalism, hustle culture, whatever, that is a reality. So I think that what happens is that people are trying to find these creative ways to do that. And I think the beauty of the psychology, mental health, social work, counseling communities is that our skill sets are so applicable and transferable in so many different arenas. And that means that you can help people in so many different ways. Then it doesn't have to look like one-on-one 60 minute direct care hours for dollars situations. And if we're going to preserve and conserve our energy and capacities and be really intentional about what we say yes to and what we kind of pursue, we're going to start seeing a shift in how the mental health world is experienced. And it doesn't mean there's ever going to be a shortage of private practice therapists. I mean, there are new private practices starting every single second of every single day. But I do think that means that for a lot of people who are more entrepreneurial, who are kind of tired or exhausted or burnt out or bored 
or the combination of all of those, you're going to start seeing people writing books, writing workbooks, participating in podcasts, doing courses, doing coaching, doing retreats, speaking at um, conferences, speaking to corporations, doing sorts of all sorts of training. So the sky is the limit. It's just a matter of recognizing like mm-hmm. the, you can't see the forest for the trees a lot of the time when you don't know there are other options out there. Patrick, I, I love the way you said that. I think it's interesting that we're it's now not a status quo of staying in private practice till the end. Now we have this option and we're seeing other therapists come out of private practice and do other things. And I wonder, you know, one of our favorite questions to ask all of our guests is what advice would you give to someone in a similar situation? But I wonder what advice you could give to students or to newly licensed folks who are maybe getting into or in private practice. And maybe they're not at the cusp of retiring, but maybe they see it in 10, 20 years down the line that they want to be fully out of one-to-one work, maybe when they're 30 or 40. Um, So those people at the beginning of their journeys, what advice would you give them having gone through it? It's a loaded question. I think that it's very nuanced. And what I would offer is to stay curious and to stay open-minded and to pursue your interests. And that doesn't just mean whether your interests take you outside of private practice, but if your interests change your niche because you're no longer interested in working with clients who struggle with A, but you're now interested in clients who struggle with B, that's okay. If you want to reinvent your website a million times and rewrite your site today 2,000 times, that's okay. There's no right or wrong way to do this. And I think that's really the takeaway is that it doesn't have to be binary. It doesn't have to be black and white. And I think of the entrepreneurial journey as driving down a highway and oftentimes getting off at random exits, getting rerouted, hitting traffic jams, blowing out your tire and relying on strangers for help. Like there are so many ways that this career path can look. And there are lots of ways to make money. And I really think it's also important to surround yourself with communities of people who think similarly, because it's very easy to surround yourself in pockets in the mental health communities, especially of like Mm -hmm. people who say, you don't make money in this field. You don't get into this field to do this. Uh, No, you can't curse in your content. No, you shouldn't like share some of your story. I think it's so easy to get bogged down in this like old school mentality of what mental health care looks like. And I think that you can have an enormous impact on a global scale, even by simply starting a podcast. I mean, the other podcast that I co-host has only been out for two months and we've had 50,000 downloads. That's 50,000 people all over the world listening to information about autism, ADHD. And that is a free offering. So There are so many ways that your voice and your creativity and your skill sets can be applicable. And I think that's really always the biggest takeaway for me at this point. So well said. I don't think we could have said it any better. And it's such great advice. Catherine, I love the lens of thinking of it for people at, you know, the beginning of this journey. We do have a lot of student listeners, a lot of newer therapists across, you know, a wide range, but I feel like I love this angle. But Patrick, we're so thankful for you sharing all this information. Um, where can our listeners find you if they want to connect outside of the podcast? Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. And I always just want to 
just just really highlight that. The other thing I should have said is comparison traps. Whether you're starting off, mm-hmm. whether you're in the mm-hmm. middle of your journey, like just don't compare yourself to other people. And mm-hmm. I think that's really something to try to keep in mind as well. Um, for everyone listening, you can find my podcast, the All Things Private Practice Podcast, on all major platforms and YouTube. You can find me on Instagram as All Things Private Practice. You can join the All Things Private Practice Facebook group if you want to come to Ireland, Portugal, Spain, Greece, or the medieval village in Italy for the Doubt Yourself Do It Anyway Summit. You can find all of that information on my website at allthingspractice.com. And if you want to learn more about ADHD and autism from Megan Neff and myself, you can listen to the Divergent Conversations podcast. Love it. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you so much. And that's it. The OG Bad Therapists, Allie and Catherine, are signing off for this week. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We love the Bad Therapist community so much and want to continue normalizing real therapist experience. You can help us by leaving a five-star review or sharing this episode with a friend or colleague. Are you a bad therapist and want to be on the show? Go to abadtherapist.com and tell us your story. Our podcast is produced and edited by my amazing husband, Austin Joy. He also created the music for our intro and outro. You can find this song, along with many others, on any music platform under the artist Air for Effect. And if you're a bad therapist starting your own podcast, contact Austin for his full suite of podcast and sound production services. You can find him on Instagram at Air for Effect. And if you've experienced an actual bad therapist, contact your state health department or head over to stopbadtherapy.com for more information. And if you've liked this episode, we've got plenty more. Yeah, over 50 therapist stories ready for you to binge if you can't wait for our newest episode next Monday. 